Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, So That You May Believe, the study of the seven signs Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. Good morning, everyone. We're beginning a new series this morning, so please open in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and that's where we'll be studying today. And would you please bow your heads with me and pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you want to speak to us. And Lord, our desire is to hear your Word and receive it this morning. Lord, help us that we would not only understand what it says that you wouldn't only increase the knowledge in our heads, but Lord, you would do a transforming work in our hearts. And so we pray that as we receive your word, it would have its effect in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives, Lord, that you would transform us through this time as we sit under your word. And we, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, years ago, uh, my wife and I, when we got married, we went on our honeymoon and we went to Mexico on our honeymoon. Now, we like to think of ourselves as being uh, a little bit adventurous. I don't know if we are or not, but we try to be. And so we didn't go to a, a resort. What we did is we got married in San Diego. A friend drove us across the border to Tijuana. We got a flight to Mexico City. Then we rented a car, and we drove for about four hours kind of into a, a fairly undeveloped part of the country. And I was looking back at some of my photos from our, our honeymoon, and there's this one picture I took that I saw in there of a sign. Uh, if you've ever driven through some parts of Mexico, maybe you've seen these signs, right? We were driving through these little villages in the jungle, and all along the road, there would sometimes be these signs, like they're a blue sign, and it had a picture of a pyramid on it. And what that sign indicated is that there's an archaeological site nearby, and in many cases, there are actually pyramids. And so at one of these signs, we pull over on the side of the road, and we got out of the car, we walked a little bit into the jungle, and sure enough, there was a pyramid. But here's the thing. In my pictures from our honeymoon, I took a picture of the road sign with the picture of a pyramid on it, but I didn't actually take any pictures of the pyramid itself which is kind of weird, right? Because sure, it's a cool sign, but it was probably made in like a sign factory in like 1997, right? Like it's not that old and it's, it's just a metal sign. I didn't take a picture of the thing which is actually valuable, the thing that the sign was pointing to. The real treasure in this case was the pyramid. And yet for some reason, rather than focusing on the thing which the sign pointed to, all I cared about was the sign itself. You see, the thing about signs is that signs exist to point to something beyond themselves. Furthermore, signs give us information which seeks to lead us to a desired destination. Now, how many of you have ever had this thought where you've said to yourself, if God would just give me a sign, then I would definitely believe? Right? How many of you know that's some of the people, a lot of people say, maybe some of you have felt that yourself. Well, hey, if that's you, have I got good news for you today? Because for the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at seven signs that God has given us so that we might believe in him. The Gospel of John is one of the four books of the Bible called the Gospels. The word gospel means a proclamation of good news. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are the eyewitness accounts 
of the people who saw and heard the things that Jesus said and did. Now, of those four Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels. And all that means, the word synoptic, it simply means that they seek to give us a general overview of Jesus's life, ministry, and teaching. But the Gospel of John is different. It's not one of the synoptic Gospels, and there's a reason for that. John's gospel was the last of the gospels to be written. John was the last of Jesus' original 12 disciples to die. And so when John wrote his gospel, the other ones were already in existence. And John set out, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write down some of the stories that I remember that didn't make it into the other gospels. And rather than giving us a general overview of Jesus' life and ministry, since that had already been done by other gospel writers, John instead chose to focus in on some key moments, some key uh, times in, in Jesus' life and kind of hone in on those. And so the Gospel of John is structured in this way. It's structured around seven sayings that Jesus gave, gave called the I Am Sayings. And is structured around seven signs that Jesus performed. And together, these seven I am statements and these seven signs, they reveal to us who Jesus is in such a way that somebody who reads this should feel compelled to believe in him. Now, in our previous series, we looked at the seven I am statements. In this series, we're going to be looking at the seven signs that Jesus performed that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And so the throughout these two series, we essentially are studying the essence of the Gospel of John. Now, something that's unique about John's Gospel is that John doesn't refer to miracles as miracles. The other Gospel writers, they say Jesus performed a miracle. But John doesn't call miracles miracles. John calls Jesus' miracles signs. And that's important because, remember, the nature of signs is that a sign, like the one I saw in the jungle in Mexico, it's, a, it's something that points to something else. And it seeks to lead you to a desired destination. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought about this? Why did Jesus perform miracles? Maybe you say, okay, well, I know that he did, and the Bible says he did. But why? Have you thought about that? What was the point of doing miracles? I mean, think about it. If Jesus came primarily as a teacher, then why didn't he just teach? What, why, did, why did he bother with all these miracles? If, on the other hand, Jesus came merely to die as a sacrifice for our sins, well, then why does he need to perform miracles? I mean, what's the, what's the point of the miracles? Were, were miracles just cool things that Jesus was able to do, and they impressed people, and they showed off his power, and in some cases, maybe they helped people? Is that all they were? Well, John tells us that Jesus' miracles actually had a purpose. And here's what they are. See, by calling Jesus' miracles signs, John is telling us that Jesus' miracles weren't just cool things that he did. They had a purpose. And he's going to tell us what the purpose of them were. You see, the, they pointed to something beyond themselves. They were designed to lead us to a destination. And John tells us at the end of this gospel what that destination is and what the goal, the purpose of Jesus' uh, miracles were. Here's what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In, in all, we know that in the gospels, Jesus performed about 35 miracles that are recorded but we know that he also did other things as well. But here's what John says. These miracles, 
these seven that I've recorded, these things are written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Listen, everything in the Gospel of John serves to answer four basic questions. Here are the questions. Who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, what he has to offer you, and how you can receive it. Everything in the book answers those questions. In fact, every story seeks to answer those questions uniquely. Now, in the very first chapter of the book, John introduces us to Jesus by telling us the answer to these four questions. He says, here's who Jesus is. He is God come to us to save us from the curse of sin and death and to give us life everlasting. And the way to receive it is by believing in him. And then in every subsequent chapter, John then tells us stories which illustrate this point in different ways. Again, these four questions are answered in every story in this book. Who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, what he has to offer you, and how you can receive it. The title of this series is So That You May Believe. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at how John uses these seven signs Jesus performed as building blocks of evidence. He's building a case to convince us of something, and each sign in this case serves to add to the weight of evidence. Each of these seven signs is like another breadcrumb in a trail of breadcrumbs that seeks to lead us to this destination. And the destination they're leading us to is belief in Jesus so we can have life in his name. So buckle up, enjoy the ride. By the way, this is a great series to invite someone to, a friend or a family member. The schedule, by the way, if you got one of those flyers when you came in uh, this morning, the schedule is on the back side of that flyer, so you can see the passages we're going to study, see the, te the text we're going to cover uh, over the next several weeks. So we're going to begin the journey this morning by looking at the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed, which is when he turned water into wine. So the title of today's message is From Shame to Celebration. And here's what we'll see in our passage today. The transforming of water into wine signified that Jesus came to remove our shame and bring about unending joy for those who trust in him. So every week I give you a sentence. It serves as our outline for studying the passage. It's also a summary of what the message is about. And I'd love it if you'd write it down and take this thought with you as you go out of here today. Let it kind of uh, roll around in your brain throughout the week. So the transforming of water into wine signified that Jesus came to remove our shame and bring about unending joy for those who trust in him. The, the first part of that, let's look at that first. The transforming of water into wine. The Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. In the third day, there was a wedding at Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So when my wife and I got married, we, we invited the, our close family and close friends, and there were about 100 people in attendance at our wedding. Ceremony lasted about 30 minutes, and the reception was about two hours long. And it couldn't have been longer because there was somebody in line after us. They needed to get that place cleaned and get the next wedding in there. You see, weddings, it, they kind of reflect the way a culture thinks. And our weddings here in America and in the West, they tend to focus on efficiency and time management. We've got to get in, get out. There are other things to do today. You don't want to be here all day, right? And then uh, but, you know, in other parts of the world, they think about these things very differently than we do. 
in many parts of the world, weddings tend to have many guests, and they tend to last a lot longer, sometimes even for multiple days. I have a lot of friends in India, and they told me how traditionally in India, you don't just invite your friends and family to your wedding, you invite your entire neighborhood. If you live in a village, you invite the whole village, and not just your co-workers, but your co-workers can invite their friends, right? It's basically everybody you know and everybody that everybody you know knows is invited to the wedding. And in ancient Israel, it was much more like that. An Israeli wedding feast would often last for seven days. And there would be food and dancing, celebrating for days. It was a community event. You could come and go and then come back, and it would just continue. So Cana, where this took place, is only a few miles away from Nazareth, and it's also not very far from Capernaum. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. Capernaum is, was their head base, their, their headquarters during Jesus' time and his ministry with his disciples. And so it's not a surprise that Jesus is there, his disciples are there, Mary's there. It was a community event. But then in the midst of this big celebration, look what happens in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, a big part of the wedding feast was wine, because wine is a symbol of celebration and merriment. Even in the Bible, by the way, look, look at what the Bible says about this. Psalm 104 says, God gave the grass of the field for cattle to eat, and he gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. In Psalm 2, the psalmist says, God has put more joy in my heart than when grain and wine abound. Now, whereas grain is something you need for survival, you need it for food. If you're a farmer, you need it for income. You sell it and make money. Wine is different, right? Grain you need for existence and survival. Wine is a luxury, right? It's, it's an indulgence, right? Wine is not something you need to survive, it's something that exists for enjoyment. And yet right in the middle of this time of joy and celebration, they ran out of wine. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but understand, it was a really big deal for those people back then. When Jesus' mother, Mary, comes and tells him that they've run out of wine, understand, she's not just telling Jesus a fact. She's telling him a scandal. Right? This is the kind of thing where she would have grabbed him by the shirt and led him around the corner where no one could hear, and she would have whispered to him, Jesus, there's a problem. We've run out of wine. Right? And in that culture, once you were out of wine, the party was over. And it's not like you can just go to the liquor store and buy more wine. Right? There's no liquor store to buy wine at. So in the grand scheme of things, listen, there are much worse things that can happen to you than running out of wine at your wedding feast. But for those people in that culture... This was a big deal. It would have been a social catastrophe, and in a shame and honor culture, it would have been a huge embarrassment. It would have brought shame upon the family in that community. So Mary pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, this is embarrassing for these people. Is there anything you can do? Now, the reason why Mary asked Jesus for help is because Mary knows who Jesus is. Remember, up until this point, Jesus had not performed any miracles. This is going to be his first miracle. That's what it says. If you look down to verse 11, this was Jesus' very first miracle. But even though Jesus hadn't performed any miracles yet up until this point, Mary still knew exactly who Jesus was. I like to just imagine what it must have been like as Jesus was growing up and as Mary and Joseph would have told Jesus the stories about the 
the things that happened around the time of his birth, right? The angelic announcements of who he was, that he was the Messiah, the promised Savior King of Israel that God had promised through the prophets. I, I wonder if Mary told Jesus the story of how she found out she was pregnant and she was shocked because she was a virgin or how they had all these weird visitors who showed up when Jesus was little who would just kind of knock on the door and want to give Jesus homage or how they had to flee to Egypt when Jesus was a baby because King Herod wanted to kill him because he considered him a threat to the throne. You see, they had this was part of their family lore. They told these stories to Jesus. They knew exactly who he was and they've been waiting for years for the moment when Jesus is going to step into that role and take his place as the Messiah and begin his ministry. The Old Testament prophecies had said that when the Messiah would come, he would perform miracles. For example, it says in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, the prophet Isaiah says, when the Messiah would come, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Mary must have figured, if my son is the Messiah, and the Messiah can do these kinds of miracles, then maybe he can do something in this situation to help these people out to save them from this social embarrassment. After all, right before this, Jesus had just begun his official ministry, had just begun gathering his disciples. When it says in verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, what does that mean? What third day is this talking about? Well, it's saying the third day after the last event which took place, which is in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, and that event was when Jesus was on the shores of Galilee recruiting and gathering his disciples. So shortly after that, they go to this wedding. In other words, Jesus had just begun his public ministry. So Mary's thinking, okay, Now's the time. Jesus' ministry has started, and the Messiah is going to perform miracles, so maybe he can start today, and he can help out these poor people who need some more wine to avoid social catastrophe. But look at how Jesus responds, verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, what does that phrase mean? My hour has not yet come. In the Gospel of John... Jesus refers to his hour seven times. He talks about his hour. At first, about five times, he says, my hour has not yet come, not yet come. And then towards the end of the book, as Jesus is approaching his death, he says, my hour has now come, has come. So the hour that Jesus is referring to is the hour of his death. In other words, Jesus is telling Mary, Mary, I, I have come here on a mission as the Messiah. And my mission is to give my life not to perform parlor tricks at weddings. And yet, it says, verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, listen, maybe we don't have the whole conversation here. We don't know everything that was said between Mary and his mother. But somehow, Mary walked away from this conversation with the understanding that Jesus was going to do something. It says in verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Okay, so ritual hand-washing 
was a big part of Jewish practice and culture. Uh, you would wash your hands before a meal, and then you would wash your hands after a meal. It was a big part of Jewish tradition. You will remember probably a time when the Pharisees and the scribes got mad at Jesus because Jesus' disciples didn't do this ritual hand washing before they ate their meals. And they said, what is this? You know, you don't honor the traditions of our fathers. Well, the washing they were referring to was this ritual hand washing, and they would use these large stone containers for this. And the reason they were made out of stone is because the Jewish people believed that stone did not absorb uncleanness as other materials did. And so it says in verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, now be, the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So as the servants did what Jesus told them to do, a miracle took place. The water was transformed into wine, and not just any wine, but exceedingly good wine, and lots of it. I mean, just do the math real quickly. We're talking about somewhere around 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine, and that's enough wine to keep the party going for a long time. But you know what the people were not able to do anymore? They were no longer able to do that ritual hand washing in those stone jars because the jars had been repurposed in order to hold this new wine. Okay, so that's what happened. The question is, what does it mean? And that brings us to the next part of our sentence, which is this. The transforming of water into wine signified that Jesus came to remove our shame and bring about unending joy. It says in verse 11, this, the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Of all the miracles that Jesus could have chosen to be his first miracle, why did he choose this one? And why did he do it in the way he did it? And how does it reveal his glory? They say you only get one chance to make a first impression. So why would Jesus choose making wine at a wedding feast his first miracle? Well, John tells us there in verse 11, this action wasn't just a miracle for the sake of doing a miracle. No, no, no. This was a sign which by nature points to who Jesus is and what he came to do. You see, here's what's interesting. In the Old Testament... The prophets foretold that when the Messiah would come, he would usher in a new era in world history. And when the Messiah came, things would be different. Our sorrows, our sadness, our shame would be removed, and it would be replaced with rejoicing. And that rejoicing, it would be characterized by, this new era would be characterized by abundance of wine. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 12. It says, They will come and they will shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. In Joel chapter 3, verse 18, In that day the mountains will drip with new wine. In Amos 9, verse 13, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with it. 
abundance of wine was the characteristic of the new age that the Messiah would bring. It was a sign that Jesus was the Messiah. So by creating this abundant wine, 150 gallons, more wine than anybody had ever seen, it was a sign that the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world, had come, and it was Jesus, the one who had come to usher in the new era in history in which shame would be removed and replaced with celebration. Furthermore, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, heaven is described in terms of a wedding feast, the ultimate party, a celebration, a time of festival joy, feasting and fellowship, which never ends. Look at how the prophet Isaiah describes what heaven will be like. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. This miracle was a sign pointing to who Jesus was and why he had come, that he was the Messiah who had come to remove disgrace and bring us into relationship with God that would result in fellowship, celebration, and joy, the ultimate wedding feast, which would never end. This first miracle at Cana, it was a glimpse, a preview, a foreshadowing of the kingdom which is to come, which Jesus came to bring. But wait, that still begs one more question. How would Jesus do this? How would he actually practically succeed in taking away our sorrows and giving us joy that never ends? Well, the answer to that question is actually alluded to in the way that Jesus performed this miracle. Remember, Jesus made wine in these stone jars that were used for ritual hand washing. Now, that's a strange thing to do. I hope you understand that, right? Because, listen, if this wedding has been going on for a while and the people drank all the wine, that means that there are what? There's a bunch of empty wine containers laying around, and those wine containers are designed for holding and dispensing wine at large events like wedding feasts. So the normal thing to do would be to reuse those empty containers. What's not normal is to use the jars that are for ritual hand washing and put wine in those jars. It would be like this. It'd be like if we ran out of coffee on a Sunday morning. We said, oh no, we're out of coffee. What a shame. Need to make more coffee, but I told the hospitality team, I said, listen, don't make the coffee in the coffee pots. I want you to make it in the baptismal, and we'll just all drink coffee out of that. <laughs> See, you're laughing, because that would be weird, but that's exactly what Jesus did. So what was the significance of using jars or for, that were for ritual cleansing in order to make wine for a wedding feast? Well, think about this. The need for continual cleansing with water. It reminded the people that they were unclean fundamentally. The fact that they had to do it over and over and over, and after they washed, they would just get dirty again. You know what it told them? It told them that their uncleanness wasn't something that could just be washed away with water. No, it's something that's fundamental to them. It is an aspect of who they are at their core. And as unclean people, they were unfit for God's presence. That's what this communicated to them. And no matter how many times they washed outwardly, it could never really wash away 
their uncleanness. You could wash away the filth for a moment, but then you'd have to wash again and again because your uncleanness wasn't something you could wash away. It was part of who you are. And these ritual washings would never really solve the problem because your uncleanness isn't just something outward that you can fix with water. No, it's something that is inside of you. You see, these jars for ritual washings, you know what they did? They pointed to, they were a reminder of the shame that we all carry as human beings, that all of us are unclean by nature. We carry around a sense of shame because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. By our actions, by our thoughts, we all carry around a sense of shame because of the knowledge that we need to be cleansed from our sins. I wonder if anyone at that wedding feast, as they saw the, these hand-washing stations filled to the brim with red wine, I wonder if any of them were reminded of how Moses had turned the water of the Nile River into blood during the 10 plagues in Egypt when God brought judgment on, on Egypt. And as the people drank that red wine, red like the color of blood, I wonder if any of them understood what it symbolized that Jesus had come to take away our shame and our uncleanness by cleansing us of our sins, not with water to wash us outwardly, but with his own blood, which washes us completely on the inside. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I wonder how many of Jesus' disciples at the Last Supper before he was crucified, he took the cup of wine and he said, take and drink. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. I wonder how many of them immediately thought back to this event at the wedding at Cana and suddenly understood why Jesus had used those ritual hand-washing stations for the wine he created. And they suddenly understood that it was because Jesus had come to shed his blood in order to cleanse us, not temporarily with water, but permanently by his blood, not just on the outside, but on the inside for good. You see, this miracle Jesus performed, it was a sign of, remember the four things that each story addresses? Who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the promised one, whose coming would be characterized by abundance of wine. And what Jesus came to do to remove our shame and bring about unending joy by cleansing us. And the joy, by the way, the joy that he came to bring, it's not just for after you die and go to heaven, then you can have some joy. So just, you know, grit your teeth and try to survive until you die, right? That's not what it is. So many people have this mistaken idea that Christianity, at its essence, is a grind, and so people will turn their backs on Christianity because they'll say, I want to have fun. I want to enjoy my life. And they think that Christianity is the opposite of that. But I want you to look at this miracle that Jesus performed, his very first miracle. It shows us that the essence of, of why Jesus came was to remove your shame and bring you into fellowship with God that is characterized by never-ending celebration and joy. And that joy is not just for the life to come. It's something we begin to experience here and now. You know, in my life and experience, I have to say this. Though the Christian life does include self-denial and sacrifice, the purpose of those things is always because they lead to greater joy. 
The Christian life is by far the most hopeful and most joyful life you can possibly live because in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, your shame is removed, and you have the promise that God is with you and God is for you, both for eternity, but also in the circumstances of your life here and now. So the next question in that list, of course, is this. Here's what Jesus offers you, okay, but how do you receive what Jesus offers you? And that brings us to our final point, which is this. The transforming of water into wine signified that Jesus came to remove our shame and bring about unending joy for those who trust in him. It says at the end of verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. That's an interesting phrase, and I'll tell you why. Because in the previous chapter, chapter 1, we saw that Jesus' disciples started following him. And why did they start following him? Because they believed that he was the Messiah. Do you get what I'm saying? They already believed that he was the Messiah. So when it says here that they saw this miracle and they started to believe, what does that mean? Here's what it means. They, they already believed that he was the Messiah in theory, but now they began to believe in a whole new way, in a deeper way. Their belief that they had in him that was theoretical now it's personal. It's moved from their heads down into their hearts. Friends, how do you receive what Jesus offers to you? You receive it by believing in him, not just theoretically, but personally. And to believe in him means to trust in him, to trust that truly his blood shed for you is able to cleanse you from your sins and bring you into the celebration and joy of a relationship with God as someone who has been redeemed and made a child of God. And so my question for you today is this. Having seen this sign, the testimony of it in this story, and understood what it means, will you now respond by believing in him? Listen, believing in Jesus isn't something that you just do once and then never think about it again. You tick that box and you're good forever. No, 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 that's not how it works. Believing in Jesus is something you need to do continually, every day, in every situation of your life. And so I want to invite you today to follow this sign to the destination God wants it to lead you to, which is to believe in Jesus, whether for the first time or in the moment, right, whatever situation you are facing in your life today. Friends, the transforming of water into wine signified that Jesus came to remove our shame and bring about unending joy for those who trust in him. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.